We're going to take a trip back to Bethlehem through the scripture, but we're going to take a trip a little further back than you might anticipate. We're going to take a trip back further than Jesus by about a thousand years. We're going we're to see Bethlehem. We're going to see the chosen king who was born in Bethlehem, but we're going to see this chosen king born in Bethlehem who is not Jesus but looks forward to Jesus. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. Let's read God's holy inspired word together. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I've come to sacrifice the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither is the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither is the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass Before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord hasn't chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, well, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And he sent, oh, sorry, and sent and brought him in. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold now, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. When the evil spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, behold, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who was skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse And said, send me David, your son, who's with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David to his son Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse saying, let David remain in my service for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well. And the evil spirit departed from him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this account of of the first anointed king, the first really king that you chose, the king after your own heart. God, who you appointed to be the refreshment and hope of Israel. Lord, pointing forward to the hope and refreshment of all the nations forward to a different king in the line of David that would be born. So God, I pray that we might see you. I pray that we might behold you. I pray that we might look forward to the better king, Jesus. And I pray that we might come to Bethlehem and see not just David, but him who's born the risen king, Jesus. In your name we pray.
Amen. Well, the scripture, it's a turning point in the book of Samuel. And in fact, it's really the turning point in the Old Testament. It's the midway point of the book of Samuel, but it's also the first time where this, this chosen, anointed king, this one chosen by God, is put into place. And everything from the Old Testament is different from here on out. How the people of God are to be ruled, how they're meant to be ruled is to be different from here on out. And then the people of God's anticipation in the Old Testament from here to the next thousand years until Jesus would come is anticipating the true chosen anointed king. So it all kind of changes and hinges on this chapter. What we see here is a spark of hope. You know, maybe you came this morning and you're thinking, I I need hope this morning. We sang that song, Hallelujah, Hope Has Come. That's kind of what we're seeing here is is this spark of hope, this glimmer of hope that the people of Israel are seeing. There's been a long, dark night. They thought that Samuel, Saul, was going to be the king, but yet their hopes were dashed. Samuel, the prophet of God, the one who spoke God's words, he is grieved at the beginning of this passage. He's sad. He's in mourning. And yet there's a spark of hope, a glimmer of joy showing up on the scene. You see, God is revealing his choice of a king to lead his people. We sang hallelujah, hope has come. We join in singing joy to the world. We know that our true hope, our true king has come. And our true joy has been revealed to the world. And in this passage, we see this really foretaste of the king to come. We see this foretaste of healing and refreshment that our true king brings. And the big idea that we're going to look at in this passage is just that God's choice to be king is full of the spirit and brings refreshment. God's choice to be king is full of the spirit and he brings refreshment. It's God's choice. We see at the very beginning of the passage in in verse 1. And then we see in the middle, he's choosing him to be king and he's full of the spirit. Then we see at the very end that He brings refreshment. God's choice to be king is full of the Spirit and brings refreshment. Well, if any of you were alive, I I was not quite alive in 1960, but the 1961 presidential campaign was underway, and in 1960, there was two candidates facing each other, and it was a monumental shift, a monumental change in things. A, A guy named John F. Kennedy was up against another man named Richard Nixon. And there had never been a televised debate in the presidential election campaign up until this point. And this was really a game changer. It changed the scene of elections and, and how what people saw and how people made decisions. And it made changes about personality and presence and image management that really had never been considerations before. Kennedy, he was young, he was tanned, he was handsome, he spoke with a really cool accent. If you ever go back and watch Kennedy speaking, you're like, wow, he kind of had this weird, almost British kind of in the middle, English kind of sound, and he carried himself well. He, was, he had been resting the weekend before the debate in good health in his hotel room the day of the debates. Nixon, on the other hand, he had... He had been the vice president. He had gotten off a grueling campaign trail. He had, he had injured his knee a few weeks before. He had gotten a staph infection. He was in the hospital. He lost a lot of weight. He was sallow, sunken. He looked weak and sickly. He had gotten the flu after that. And then on his way to, to the debate, he bangs his knee again, getting out of the car. And so he's limping. He's in pain. He hobbles up. He, it was the end of the day. He'd been campaigning all day. He had a five o'clock shadow. And so his aides convinced him to put this I think it was called, you know, a beard away or a five o'clock away. It was this weird grocery store thing that they would put on men to hide their five o'clock shadow. And so they put it on him right before he got up there. Well, combined with the light shining on him and he had a fever, he was sweaty. He looked awful. And so he's here sweating. He looks awful and he's, he's dripping down his face and this stuff's like melting. His face is melting off. It's, it's really gross. If you go back and watch it, you're like, something's wrong with the guy. He wore this like bleached out kind of gray suit that blended with the background. You could barely see him. He looked kind of like a ghost. He didn't know to look into the TV. And instead, when the reporters asked all the questions, he looked at the reporters. But that made him look kind of sketchy because he was looking away from the cameras. And so it made him look shifty. People already had a hard time trusting him, you know. They called him tricky as it was. And so um, 
On the other hand, Kennedy, he, he, was, he was confident, he was calm, he was tan, he looked good, he spoke well, he looked right in the camera, didn't look at the reporters, and so he made eye contact with, the, with the, the, the largest television viewing audience at the time. 70 million people tuned into that debate. You think about the size of the United States at that time, that was a massive percentage of the population, and it was probably most of the voting population. So the History Channel wrote... A month and a half later, Americans turned out to vote in record numbers. As predicted, it was a close election with Kennedy winning the popular vote 49.7% to 49.5%. Polls revealed that more than half of all voters, half of all voters had been influenced by this great debate, while 6% claimed that debate alone had decided their choice. Whether or not the debates cost Nixon the presidency, they were a major turning point in the 1960 race, the history of television, and the history of image management. That's telling, isn't it? Now, please, no, I'm not making any kind of political commentary. I'm not, I, I wasn't alive, I wasn't for or against Kennedy or Nixon. I don't have any opinion about who would have been the right choice in God's providence. Kennedy was chosen, and I do wonder what it would have been like if he wasn't assassinated, and he might have been in some outcome might have been very different and better in some respects, but that's not the point. The point is, is that image, what we see, what we perceive can affect all of us. When you look around you and you see people dressed in a certain way, or maybe you saw the kids this morning and some kids were were dressed really sharply and you thought, oh, that's so adorable and that's great. But did that affect the way you view people? Do you view people differently based on their outward image or appearance? Sometimes what we see can sway us right? If you're honest with yourself. Sometimes it can be a good choice. Other times it can lead us in the wrong direction. The people of Israel and Samuel had actually been swayed by a guy named Saul. He was, it says he's handsome like four times. It's kind of creepy how many times it refers to in the book of Samuel how handsome Saul was. You're getting a little comfortable like, all right already. Like, what's up with this writer? He thinks Saul's really handsome, more handsome than anybody. And in fact, he was head and shoulders above everybody in Israel. So he was big, he was tall, he was strong, he looked the part. But they had been swayed by what they saw, that people had chosen based on outward appearances. This account, Samuel again, is almost swayed by what he sees. If it was up to Samuel, if Samuel wasn't listening to God, he sees Eliab and he says, surely the Lord's anointed must be before him. Because Eliab was big and strong, the firstborn, probably well-spoken, probably people liked him and he looked good, you know. But God, who sees clearly, he reveals his choice and his chosen king. And this is good news for all of us. You see, our choices lead to bad things, to kings who disappoint. That's what Saul teaches us. And and what is Samuel and what is the coming King David? What what are they going to teach us? That, That God's choice brings hope. God's choice It brings hope. And that's really the first scene that we're introduced to is that God's choice here brings hope. At the very beginning of this passage, we find Samuel, and he's depressed. He's down. God kind of comes to him and says, Samuel, like, why the long face? Why are you looking, why why are you mourning continually over Saul? Saul failed. He had honored himself before God. He, He had listened to people instead of God. He'd been greedy. He disobeyed God's commandment. Instead of wiping out the enemy and exercising God's righteous judgment. And then he denied it when he was confronted. He didn't admit it. He didn't own up to his mistakes. He wasn't faithful. He wasn't good. He wasn't true. And yet Samuel's mourning, and maybe a piece of it's good, he's mourning the fact that Israel's hope has gone. Their hope of a king has gone. But yet God comes on the scene and he tells Samuel about his choice that's going to bring hope. I, I love that that's kind of the theme this morning so far, is that God's choice, it it brings hope, hallelujah, hope has come, and hope has come to Samuel as well. He says, Samuel, get up, fill your horn with oil, get up, and I'm going to tell you about a king that I have chosen. He was grieving, and in his moment of grief, God spoke words of hope, that his choice brings hope. You know, maybe you can relate a little bit to Samuel. Maybe you're grieving over the things you see in the world around you. 
Maybe you feel like hope is lost. Maybe you're sad. Maybe you're downcast. There's, that's understandable. This world is not a nice place sometimes, right? There's some sad, awful things that happen. Nobody's dismissing that. Life's not easy. I mean, Jesus said in this world, you'll have troubles. But take hope, I've overcome the world. So maybe you're grieving. Maybe you're like Samuel. Maybe you're downcast this morning. I want you to hear this morning the message that God had for Samuel, that God had for the people of Israel, that God has for us is that God's choice, his chosen king, brings hope. So get up. Get up and see the one whom God has chosen. God was about to see, Samuel was about to see the king that God would provide in contrast to the people, the the king that the people had chosen, right? God was going to bring his choice on the scene and his chosen king brings hope. Hope was about to bloom after a long winter had settled in on the people of Israel. And it was going to take place in Bethlehem. I love the significance of that this morning, the timing of it. It's just, it just works out really nicely that, that we're seeing that this long kind of winter in Israel's history, we see hope blooming in Bethlehem. And, and Bethlehem's always really, in, for the last several thousand years, has held a place of significance in the Bible. All the way back to the very kind of beginning of the people of Israel, Rachel, the, the wife of Jacob, who was called Israel, she was buried right outside of Bethlehem on the way up to Bethlehem. Elimelech, Naomi's husband, was from Bethlehem. We learn about them from the book of Ruth. And he, he died while in Moab, and his, his, his wife, and Naomi, and his daughter-in-law, Ruth, they came back to Bethlehem. And... We know that Boaz, who was also a forerunner of Jesus, he became a kinsman redeemer of Ruth. And they married and they lived in Bethlehem. And the son of Ruth and Boaz was Obed and the son of Obed was Jesse and the son of Jesse was David. About 300 years after this anointing that we see in our scripture here, we're gonna see some other pieces of why Bethlehem was significant, the hope that was gonna come through God's choice. The prophet Micah prophesied about Bethlehem in Micah 5, 2. He says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me, for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin, oh, what's this talking about? It's from old. So somebody's going to come whose origin's from of old, from ancient of days. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock like David was a shepherd, the shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. See, God's chosen king was going to bring hope through David. Shortly after Micah, God sent the prophet Isaiah, and, and Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 11 when he says, There shall come forth, and a lot of you who have been doing the Advent calendar I might have read this a couple weeks ago, there shall come forth, A shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Where? In Bethlehem. A shoot from the stump of Jesse. We all know that Joseph, the descendant of David, went to his betrothed Mary, who was pregnant by the Holy Spirit, and she gave birth in Bethlehem. When King Herod asked the chief priests and scribes where Jesus was, where the Christ was going to be born, they replied that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, why? They said, for so it's written by the prophet. They're quoting Micah again. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. You see, God's choice of David was going to bring hope that they didn't even know about. Hope for all the nations. So now going back to our text, God sends Samuel to Bethlehem not knowing the king for whom God was, had chosen was already on the scene. Samuel was justifiably afraid. Maybe he, had, maybe he was afraid that if Saul heard that it would be seen as treason because it would have been, that he was anointing someone else as king. But God provides a good cover story from Samuel and it wouldn't be odd for him to go to a town and make a sacrifice and so he sends him there to make a sacrifice and so Samuel invites Jesse and the other elders. Their elders are a little afraid too. Maybe they heard about how Samuel, the last time he heard about Samuel, he's killing Agag, 
with his own hand. He's hacking him to pieces with a sword. Maybe they're a little bit afraid of Samuel executing God's judgment, or maybe they were thinking, oh no, Samuel said Saul was deposed as king. Maybe he's coming to appoint somebody else as king. We're in trouble. Either way, Samuel says he's coming in peace, and he invites them to a sacrifice to the Lord with him. Isn't it interesting? A sacrifice ahead of announcement of the king. And when Samuel came, verse 5 tells us, look down your Bibles, please. He says that he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to sacrifice. We don't know any details of the actual sacrifice, but it was at this sacrifice that he intended to anoint the Messiah, the Lord's anointed one. But there's still a problem. There's still a problem here in this passage. It was the same problem that existed for the people of Israel that Samuel made a mistake before. And what my God makes clear is that just like before, Samuel was still looking on outward appearance. And he says, you know, man doesn't see rightly, but I see rightly. I choose what is best. And this is the second scene that we're introduced to in really verses 6 to 12 is that God sees and chooses what is best. And isn't that our confidence? Isn't that our hope? That, you know, we, we don't see clearly. We all, we all kind of get that at times. Sometimes that's revealed to us more than others that our sight, our vision is not clear. Sometimes we make choices and pick Saul as our king. And yet God, he sees who should be king for us. He sees clearly. He chooses what is best. And, and that's our hope and our confidence that God sees and chooses best, even when we don't. You remember what Saul had said back in, in Samuel 10, 24? You know, I mean, Samuel is really, Samuel's really impressed with Saul. And, and Saul comes up and Samuel's about to appoint Saul as king. And he's like, look, do you see this one? Do you see him who the Lord has chosen? What he means is like, this guy's really good looking. Can you see him? You're like, obviously this is God's choice, right? There's none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. And they had looked on the outward appearance. They had seen what they thought was best. They, they were missing, though, the fact that God sees and knows what's best. How about you? Sometimes do you think that you see what's best in your life? Do you think you see the way out, the way that's best for you? Do you think sometimes that you see, this is the deliverance, this is the king that I need, this is, a, this is my rescue? And yet, we can trust that really God doesn't look on what is seen externally. He looks on the hearts of man and he looks on our hearts and he looks on, on what is truly needed and he sees and chooses what's best. Samuel almost falls in the same trap again. He, he says Eliab, the firstborn, and he's like, whoa, this must be the Lord's anointed. Surely, you know, he looks the part. And then he goes to the other sons and every one, you're kind of getting this idea and there's seven sons and seven's kind of this, this number of perfection in the Bible and this number of completion. And so Samuel goes through all of these guys and he's looking and hoping and looking and hoping and he's like, whoa, something's wrong. None of these is it. He was looking on the outside appearances and he was kind of surprised when he got down to it that Eliab, the firstborn, you know, and that, that Culture, the firstborn would have been the natural leader, but surely the secondborn, a third, a fourth, a fifth, a sixth, a seventh, the eighth was pretty insignificant. The seventh was not seen as significant at all, but, but Samuel was still looking on the outward appearance. We can do that too, can't we? You ever look on the outward appearance? You ever maybe consider your own outward appearance and lack faith? You ever look on other people's outward appearance and lack faith? You know, one of the things this is meant to show us is is that not only does does God look on the heart, it's meant to give us confidence that we shouldn't be looking even at our own selves. We should be relying and trusting in God. When you meet somebody who has a prestigious position or title, do you think differently of them automatically? Maybe they've got a degree in a certain area and you think, whoa, they must really know what they're talking about. What about someone who has money? Maybe somebody who's been very successful in business. What about somebody who doesn't have very much money? How do you look at them? Maybe somebody who's never graduated from high school or doesn't have any position or title or maybe about somebody who's got several advanced degrees. How do you look at them? Do you look at them differently? Do you judge them differently? Do you evaluate them differently? Do you see them differently? 
Do you automatically form opinions about people? Either way, or make assumptions about them or their value or their worth or their significance? Surely this must be God's plan. You know, how, how, do, you, how do you, singles, how do you choose a future spouse? Whoa, surely this must be God's choice. She's really good looking. Surely this must be God's choice. He's really ripped, you know? What, how do you make those choices? Do you look on the heart? What do you think about people who are in great shape physically? And people have big muscles. Do you form opinions about them? Are you attracted to them? How do you think about those people who are overweight? Or people who don't look healthy? Or people who look sickly? Do you form opinions about them? Do you look on their outward appearance? Do you judge or prejudge them? So you don't know what's going on in people's hearts. You have no idea. Do you presume motives? Do you presume idols? Do you presume, presume sin? What about people with a different social status than you or bigger or smaller houses than you or no house at all? You impressed with the movers and the shakers that everyone's, everybody notices when they walk in the room? Maybe you gravitate to the, the motivational types like who can tell moving stories and give funny illustrations. Maybe you're like the people in Paul's day who thought that Paul wasn't really significant. He wasn't really much because he wasn't that good of a speaker and he was kind of funky looking and he walked with a limp and he wasn't impressive. point is that stature and looks, it's not that, it's not that being good looking rules you out or rules you in. Later on it says David was handsome as well. I mean, nothing compared to the other guys, but he was handsome as well in his own way. He was ruddy, a kind of reddish glow to his face probably. But the point is that looks and stature and size and outward appearances don't matter. One is not better or worse than the other. You can't know somebody's heart by looking on the externals. I know I can be tempted to size people up and evaluate them by their looks or talent or ability. And if you're honest, I hope you will see that too. For you, not just for me. I can be tempted to dismiss somebody if I find them boring or not entertaining. But let's be careful. I remember one of the early lessons I had in this when I was in 10th grade, and there was this, there was this geeky, I can't remember his name, but there was this geeky, unathletic kid. He was kind of pudgy. He was short. He wasn't very impressive or so we thought. Nobody thought much of him. And some teacher in the administration asked him to get up and speak one morning at chapel. I went to military school, so we marched to chapel three days a week. But we were at chapel one morning and got asked him to get up and speak. And this kid, he, he spoke from his heart and the content of his words and the depth of his mind and his heart, they were revealed and we were just all astounded. We were all shocked because what were we doing? We were looking on the outward appearance because he seemed kind of awkward, didn't seem to fit in. You don't know what's going on. Well, I didn't know what was going on. We prejudged him, but when his heart was spoken, it became clear we were wrong to dismiss him or overlook him, and people treated him differently when they really began to see him for who he was. How about you? How do you look at people? How do you evaluate them? By their status or their position or stature? You know, what do you think's impressive? Do you look at people and evaluate them based on the outward appearance or status or title? Look at what the Lord said about what Samuel was thinking about Eliab. Look down your Bibles, please. Verse seven. Go ahead and look down your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, look on with somebody beside you. We'll just make a, a, a plug, a shameless plug. Bring your Bibles to church if you have them or bring a smartphone with an app that has a Bible, but just don't text. So you don't get distracted by all that and Facebooking. Oh, look at the kids, how cute they were. Um, but verse seven. Verse seven, look down your Bible. It says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. He says, you don't have any idea what that person's heart is like. And then look down at verse 8, God says, for the Lord sees, and here's really good news for us, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. What does that mean? Does that mean that God like, doesn't see people? <laughs> no. It just means that God is less interested with outward accomplishments or impressiveness than he is with the content and character and the desires of a person's heart. Is your heart for God this morning? You might be impressive on the outside, but unless you're you're hoping in the future, the once and future king, the King Jesus who has come and return again, unless you're hoping in him, God's looking on your heart and you're rejected. But there's hope. 
God looks in our hearts, despite your outward accomplishments, despite what you look like, despite your lack of accomplishments, and that's good news too, by the way. You know, our hope is not in our lack or in our ability. Our hope is in the fact that God sees and knows that we're putting our trust, our hope, in his son, Jesus. What drives a person, what they live for, what they desire, what rules their motives and will, what's at the core of a person's desire, that's what a person's heart is reflected by. Their thinking, their emotions, their appetites, these things matter far more than anything external. To quote David years later, he wrote in Psalm 147, verse 10, he says, his delight, speaking of God, God's delight is not in the strength of the horse nor the pleasure, his pleasure in the legs of a man. You know, how fast he is or how muscular he looks, how strong he is. But the Lord takes pleasure, listen to this, here's our hope. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. What do you What are you hoping in? What are you fearing in your own hearts this morning? God sees and looks in the hearts of man, to borrow from Martin Luther King, Jr., that is. You know, God's kingdom's lasting nation. He says where where people will, will, his hope was this, and his hope really was not realized in a political kingdom, a political nation, but using his words, he says where he, he hopes for a nation where people will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character, But that hope is not going to ever be realized here in any earthly kingdom or nation as much as we would like that and as much as that should be the case. Our our hope is already realized that God does not judge us by the color of our skin or appearance, but by whether or not we fear him and we're placing a hope in his steadfast love. That's the content of the character by which we should be evaluated, by which God evaluates. Do we love God and is that seen in loving others? Every single one of Jesse's sons passed before Samuel. All of them and none of them were chosen. Samuel was surprised. He says, like, what's up here? Hang on, something's wrong. God's not chosen any of these. Do, do you have some more sons left? Like, what's up? Do you have more sons? Oy vey, you know, he's like, uh, he's concerned here. Oy vey, something's wrong. I love just picturing all the, the biblical characters with those accents. It's great. It makes it more fun. Um, and, and, and Jesse, his answer is telling us, well, there remains the youngest, but behold, he's, he's out keeping the sheep. And it's kind of this, this youngest of eight sons. He would have held the, held the lowliest place in the family. And this, this word for youngest, it's actually more often translated as, as smallest it has the implication of being insignificant, unimportant is the, the connotations of that word. The youngest, the smallest, the most insignificant, unimportant one. Yeah, that one, but he doesn't count. I didn't even invite him to the, to the banquet. That kind of gives me hope, you know? Maybe, maybe you feel like you've been left out. You're small, you're insignificant, you're unimportant. You're not even invited. But, but God sees and is chosen not unimportant to God. <laughs> the, the kind of the funny thing is, is that we're not even told David's name until verse 13. God says, I'm going to choose him. And then you keep wondering, who's this? Who is this? And Jesse's got a son. Well, I got the son. He's the youngest. He's the smallest one. He's out in the field, you know. We don't even know his name. He doesn't even say his name until verse 13. I think the writer is emphasizing that God, what are we seeing here? God is choosing here. God's choosing, and it's going to bring hope. He sees and he chooses what is best. And you know what God sees? He sees what the world sees as insignificant, unimportant, little, small, maybe at the time, weak, who knows. I think it's to emphasize God's character and God's nature. God likes to show himself to be the great redeemer so that we look to him and in faith trust in him and not in our own strength. And so you remember a little guy a, a lot later on his, actually, his name was Saul, but his name got changed to Paul, which means small. The apostle, small, Paul, he wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, speaking of the same principle of God picking unlikely candidates, he says, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers, and maybe you should do that this morning here. For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. 
I don't know anybody here of noble birth, by the way. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, or so-called wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Isn't that good news? God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Well, Samuel figured out by now that this last one... This youngest little one, he must be the one because all the other sons had already gone and it wasn't them. So he's like, okay, I'm going to stand and wait here. We're not even going to eat of the sacrificial meal until he comes. And so Samuel waits and, and Jesse sins and goes to get him. And maybe Jesse was kind of like, but he's out in the field, you know, getting the sheep. Because it would have been a long trek to go out and get him and come back. But Samuel's like, no, God, God knows what's best. He's choosing what's best here. And, and so as soon as the youngest son, this, this little son, Dan, David, comes in, God confirms it and he says anoint him for this is he this is the future king Samuel he takes the horn of oil and he anoints him in front of all his brothers and as soon as he did look down your Bibles you see what happens as soon as he did something very significant happened he anoints him let's see what verse is that in there you go look in verse 13 as soon as as Samuel anoints him, he, or he writes, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And so we're now introducing to the third scene, which can be summarized really as showing that, that God's spirit makes all the difference. God's spirit makes all the difference. That's what we're gonna see here. Verse 13 and 14, and we're gonna see this contrast between David and Saul. David David was filled with the Spirit. His Spirit of God rushed upon him from that day forward. And yet, we're going to see there's a difference with Saul. And God's Spirit makes all the difference. Don't rush past that. Nowhere else does it speak of anyone in the Old Testament that way where God's Spirit rested on him from that day forward in perpetuity for good. Now, today, those of you who have placed your faith, your hope in Jesus Christ, we have, all of us have received the Holy Spirit permanently as an indwelling, as a seal a sign of our adoption. And so David is this, this forerunner of the Son of God who would receive the Spirit permanently. What a privilege. And, and David was the first one to have the Spirit this way. It didn't just mean that David would live a trouble-free life now, though. And we need to see that, too. And this gives us hope. You know, what happens after David is, is given the Spirit, rushes upon him? What happens to David, right? You think, oh, great, well, this is like David's going to, like, be triumphant and everything, right? David's going to be king immediately. Everything's going to be different. His life is going to be better. Everything's going to go well with him. Maybe you thought that when you became a Christian. We've got the Holy Spirit. Everything's going to be great now. Everything's perfect. Everything's going to go well. I'm going to, like, triumph. Everything's going to be victorious, and yet David is, it's probably, who knows, 15 years later or so before he actually becomes king and he goes through a lot of crud on the way there. He gets persecuted and goes through trials and difficulty and challenges. But what's the difference here between Saul and David? And what will be the difference in the rest of Samuel between Saul and David? You see, the Holy Spirit makes all the difference David has the Spirit, and so because he has the Spirit, because he's been chosen God and, and dwelt with his Holy Spirit, he's able to weather all those trials. He's able to weather all those challenges. He's able to grow in, this, in, in the midst of this despite the challenges and difficulties. He's able to place his hope and his faith in God. For those of us who receive the Spirit now through placing your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, it doesn't mean that life is easy and temptation-free. And there's actually some encouragement in these verses. Maybe you're going through difficulties or challenges or temptations or trials. Maybe you feel like God's spoken to you a certain word and yet it hasn't come to be yet. Maybe you feel like God's called you to something greater, but you're, under, you don't, you're frustrated because you don't understand why it's not come about yet. That doesn't mean something's wrong. It actually might mean that that's exactly right. But it could mean that God wants you to rely on his Holy Spirit. 
that, that his spirit will enable you, like his spirit enabled David, thinking fast forward, thousand years after David or so, there was a son of David, Jesus, and he, he comes up out of the water in his baptism and the Holy Spirit visibly descends on him like a dove and everybody can see it and God says, this is the one in whom I'm well pleased. And he anoints Jesus, the king, for service, for ministry with the Holy Spirit. That's the same kind of picture we see here. But where does Jesus go immediately right after that? He goes to the wilderness. <laughs> That's not a place for a king. Kings don't go out to the wilderness. They, don't, they, aren't, they aren't put in a place of trial and difficulty and temptation, are they? Is that, is that the victorious Christian life? Life of temptation, trial, living in the wilderness? You know, Jesus immediately filled the spirit. He goes out to the wilderness area. Maybe you feel like you're in the wilderness right now and you think that you've been forgotten by God. Don't assume that's the case. Sometimes he sends us there through the empowering of the spirit, enabling us to overcome temptation. Jesus was, was confronted with the devil himself tempting him. And, and then he says he was just assaulted by wild beasts. I'm not sure what that's about in Mark, but, but God's Spirit sustained him and strengthened him. Often, as a Christian, we might experience the desert or temptation or difficulties or trials, but those things are the means by which God strengthens us by his Spirit, makes us more resilient in him, enables us to see him, to trust in him. And, and he will keep us faithful by his spirit even to the end, even if we die. That's, that's a picture that we're going to have of David and of Jesus. At the same time, too, the author's making this strong contrast between David, the anointed king, and Saul, the deposed king. David, in verse 13, I mean 12, he's, he's got the Holy Spirit. But what happens immediately? The spirit departs from Saul. There's this big contrast. And we're meant to see this major difference. Look at verse 14. It says, not only did the Holy Spirit depart from Saul, but an evil spirit from the Lord tormented Saul. We don't know exactly what that means. Was it, was this, does this mean a demon or could this mean an evil or bad mindset? Is this a distressing or bad state of a spirit? Could mean any or all of those things. In either case, whatever it means, it's not good. And we get this picture here. This is a, the consequence. Saul's early rejection in the previous chapter. Saul rejects God. God rejects him and withdraws his spirit and instead is given a, a bad spirit. That should be sobering for those who are rejecting God. Either case, it's not good. His servants so well, let's try to fix this. Maybe some ther- music therapy will work, you know. Today, people think music therapy is new. It's not. It's kind of an old concept, at least 3,000 years old, okay? Um, so they, they recommend musical therapy to just calm, you know, to find his inner zen or whatever. Um, not really. Um, there was no such thing back then. But they were recommending that, and so they say, well, there's a skilled musician we've heard about. And so in chapter 16, we see this, this rebellion against God. It brings this evil spirit and then Saul's servants, they recommend, they say, you know, with this, this previously insignificant boy, they talk about him now, they, they talk about him differently. He was known to be a young man of character. He was filled with the Spirit. He was, he was no longer the youngest. His, he had a reputation now empowered by the Spirit. He was skillful in playing the liar. He was a man of valor. He was a man of war. He was, he was brave. The Holy Spirit enabled him to watch his speech. He was well spoken of. He guarded his tongue. He carried himself well. Those things weren't said of him when he was anointed. We don't know the time gap here. But we do know that the Spirit made all the difference. And now David is even a different man. He's seen differently. He's not just seen as the youngest and significant one. He's seen as, boy, he carries himself well. He watches his speech. He guards his tongue. He's brave. He's a man of valor. And when it's evident the Lord was with him, because he had the Spirit of God and it made all the difference. So Saul takes the recommendation. He sends for David and Jesse sent David with a gift and David goes into Saul's service and Saul says, grew to love him. 
And in case you're wondering about the chronology here, um, in, in the next chapter in Samuel 17, you're going to see things seem to be off. Well, that's because in ancient Near Eastern writing, they didn't, they didn't care so much about chronology. What they cared it was about was, was showing the character, and they were depicting events and stories and showing how things came into being. And so sometimes the chronology in Samuel seems mixed up because it is, because the author is trying to influence, I mean, uh, show different things from history. He's trying to show how David was very different, empowered by the Spirit, than Saul. And he's trying to show that here. And David was a man after God's own heart. Saul was a man who rejected God in his heart. And so this chapter ends with this clue as to the type of king God's anointed one would be. Look down at verse 23. It's a foreshadowing of the reign of God's ultimate king. Verse 23, look what it says. It says, Whenever the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand, so Saul was refreshed and was well. And the evil spirit departed from him. This this little snapshot, this, this final scene, what does it reveal? This final scene, it reveals that God's king brings refreshment and healing. That's what it's revealing. God's choice, what God's chosen one, his chosen king, full of the spirit, he brings refreshment and healing. The people's choice of a king didn't bring refreshment. Saul didn't refresh them at all. He wasn't well on his own, he was sick. And yet, this contrast, Saul was the people's choice of the king He didn't know that God's choice of the king is the very one who would come and bring refreshment to the the kingship, bring healing, make him well. David brought Saul refreshment, and Saul was well through David's ministry. What do we learn here from all this? David was an unlikely choice, but God, his chosen one, it brings hope. We learn that God looks on the heart. He sees and he knows what's best. That God sends his spirit to those who put their hope in him and his spirit makes all the difference. And that ultimately God's chosen king brings refreshment and healing. David was a very unlikely choice, wasn't he? You know who else was an unlikely choice? Jesus he came from an obscure young woman who many in that day must have thought that she had had a child out of wedlock. They wouldn't have thought she was very likely to be carrying the Messiah. He wasn't born into pageantry. He was born in humble circumstances. Nobody would have picked Jesus to be the Messiah. He was wrapped in, in strips of cloth, a poor baby's clothing. Nobody was knitting him that whatever that gown is they used to baptize infants in. You know, my dad has pictures of it. It looks like a girl, but nobody was knitting any of those. He had swaddling claws and he was wrapped in. He wasn't likely. Later he'd be a carpenter. He lived in an obscure town called Nazareth. I don't know where you think of as obscure in South Carolina, but let that town come to your head. Yeah, maybe that's Pickens for you. Who knows? I think I heard that. Sorry, I'm not picking anybody from Pickens. God doesn't look on outward appearance of where you come from. Jesus lived in Nazareth. It was said of Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? According to the prophet Isaiah, there was nothing, nothing, nothing about Jesus' looks, the Messiah's looks, that would have drawn people to him. He didn't, wasn't much to behold. And yet at his birth, God announced Jesus, this descendant of David, the king, in Bethlehem, his chosen one who would be a shepherd like David, but a greater shepherd. And he would shepherd his people. And Jesus, this true anointed king, chosen by God from among the sons of Jesse, he has brought us, God's choice has brought us everlasting hope. Why? Because You see, we can't save ourselves. Nothing about our appearance or our ability or our inability can save us. We need God to choose someone to rescue us, to save us. And we can trust the fact that God 
knew that we couldn't do this on our own and he sent his own son to take our place to live a perfect life. God doesn't look on on who you are or where you come from or what's been done to you or by you. God now looks on your heart and he says, would you put your trust and your hope in me? Would you put your hope and your trust in, in the steadfast love of God? And if you put your steadfast love in God and trust in God, he'll make you born anew and he'll give you his spirit. And that is our hope. Our hope is in the king who's come. Jesus is the true king of valor. He has warred against God's enemies. He has defeated all of them. He's the one whose speech is truly good. His speech was, is, is, is the very words of God and full of life. Jesus is the one who found favor in God's sight. And what did Jesus do in his ministry? Kind of like David, but better. He drove away the evil spirits. He, wherever he went, he cast out demons. And what else did he do wherever he went? He, he healed the sick. He made people well. Jesus is the great shepherd of God's sheep. He watches out. He cares for people. He drives away wolves. He binds up the injured and hurting. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he leads us beside still waters. He makes us lie down in green pastures. Where King Jesus is, he brings refreshment and makes people well. How about you? Do you need refreshment? Do you need to be made well? I know I do. You know, this Christmas season is is so fraught with expectation and disappointment and family conflict and difficulties and all kinds of weirdness, you know, as joyful as it is. Christmas is an awfully weird and challenging time. And yet let's not lose sight of the hope that has come from the one who was born in Bethlehem, chosen to be God's once and future king. Go and ask the band to come forward if they will and we'll close with a song.